Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. My name is Tyler. I'll be your host. Not that there are currently any other hosts, but yeah. Anyway, uh, today we are continuing on with um, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. And do remember, this is not a podcast for children. The uh, themes are going to be a little too dark for me to be reading these things for children. All right. Chapter 22. A Time for Demons. I learned many things those first months in Tarbine. I learned which inns and restaurants threw away the best food, and how rotten food needed to be before it made you sick to eat it. I learned that the walled complex of buildings near the docks was the Temple of Telu. The Telins sometimes gave out bread, making us say prayers before we could take our loaf. I didn't mind. It was easier than begging. Sometimes the gray-robed priests tried to get me to come into the church to say the prayers, but I'd heard rumors and ran away whenever I was asked, whether I had my loaf or no. I learned how to hide. I had a secret place atop an old tannery, where three roofs met, making a shelter from the wind and rain. Ben's book I secreted away under the rafters wrapped in canvas. I handled it only rarely, like a holy relic. It was the last solid piece I had of my past, and I took every precaution to keep it safe. I learned that Tarbine is vast. You cannot understand it if you have not seen it yourself. It is like the ocean. I can tell you of the waves and water, but you don't begin to get an inkling of its size until you stand on the shore. You don't really understand the ocean. Until you are in the midst of it, nothing but ocean on all sides stretching away endlessly. Only then do you realize how small you are, how powerless. Part of Tarbine's vastness is the fact that it is divided into a thousand small pieces, each with its own personality. There was Downings, Drover Court, The Wash, Middletown, Tallows, Tunning, Dockside, The Tarway, Seeming, Seemling Lane. You could live your whole life in Tarbine and never know all its parts. But for the most practical purposes, Tarbine had two pieces, waterside and hillside. Waterside is where people are poor. That makes them beggars, thieves, and whores. Hillside is where people are rich. That makes them solicitors, politicians, and courtesans. <laughs> Interesting parallel. I had been in Tarbine for two months when I first thought to try my hand at begging hillside. Winter gripped the city firmly, and the midwinter pageantry was making the streets more dangerous than usual. This was shocking to me. Every winter for the eternity... No, sorry, not eternity. Every winter for the entirety of my young life, our troop had organized the midwinter pageantry for some town. Dressed in demon masks, we would terrorize them for seven days of high mourning, much to everyone's delight. My father played... And, and Kenneth, so convincing you'd think we'd conjured him. More, sorry, most importantly, he could be frightening and careful at the same time. No one was ever hurt when our troop was in charge. But in Tarbine, it was different. Oh, the pieces of the pageantry were all the same. There were still men in garishly painted demon masks, skulking about the city making mischief. And Kenneth was out there too, in the traditional black mask, making more serious trouble. And though I hadn't seen him, I didn't doubt that silver-masked Telu was striding around the better neighborhoods playing his part. As I said, the pieces of the pageantry were the same, but they played out differently. For one thing, Tarbine was too big for one troop to provide enough demons. A hundred troops wouldn't be enough, so rather than pay for professionals that would, as would be sensible and safe, the churches in Tarbine took the most, sorry, took the more profitable path of selling demon masks. Because of this, on the first day of high morning, ten thousand demons were set loose on the city. Ten thousand amateur demons, with license to make whatever mischief they had minds to. This might seem like an ideal situation for a young thief to take advantage of, but really the opposite was true. The demons were always thickest waterside, and while the great majority behaved properly, fleeing at the sound of Telu's name and keeping their devilry within reasonable bounds, Many did not. 
Things were dangerous the first few days of high morning, and I spent most of my time simply staying out of harm's way. But as midwinter approached, things settled down. The number of demons was steadily decreased, as people lost their masks or tired of the game. Tellu no doubt eliminated his share as well, but Silver Mask or no, he was only one man. He could hardly cover the whole of Tarbeen in just seven days' time. I chose the last day of mourning for my trip to Hillside. Spirits are always high on Midwinter's Day, and high spirits mean good begging. Best of all, the ranks of the demons were noticeably thinned, which meant it was reasonably safe to be walking the streets again. I set out in the early afternoon, hungry because I couldn't find any bread to steal. I remember feeling vaguely excited as I headed toward Hillside. Maybe some part of me remembered what Midwinter had been like with my family. Warm meals and warm beds afterwards. Maybe I had been infected by the smell of evergreen boughs. By the smell of... Sorry, goodness, let me start that over. Maybe I had been infected by the smell of evergreen boughs being gathered into piles and set ablaze in celebration of Talu's triumph. That day I learned two things. I learned why beggars stay waterside, and I learned that no matter what the church might tell you, midwinter is a time for demons. I emerged from an alley and was instantly struck by the difference in, a in atmosphere between this part of the city and where I had come from. Waterside, Merchants wheedled and cajoled customers, hoping to lure them into their shops. Should that fail, they were not shy about bursting into fi fits of bellicosity, cursing or even openly bullying customers. Here, the shop owners wrung their hands nervously. They bowed and scraped, and were unfailingly polite. Voices were never raised. After the brutal reality of things waterside, it seemed to me as if I had stumbled into a formal ball. Everyone was dressed in new clothes, everyone was clean, and they all seemed to be participating in some sort of intricate social dance. But there were shadows here, too. As I surveyed the street, I spotted a pair of men lurking in the alleyway across from me. Their masks were quite good, blood-red and fierce. One had a gaping mouth, and the other a grimace of pointed white teeth. They were both wearing the traditional black hooded robes, which I approved of. So many of the demons' waterside didn't bother with the proper costume. The pair of demons slipped out to follow a well-dressed young couple who were strolling idly down the street, arm in arm. The demons stalked them carefully for nearly a hundred feet, then one of them snatched the gentleman's hat and thrust it into a nearby snowdrift. The other grabbed the woman in a rough embrace and lifted her from the ground. She shrieked while the man struggled with the demon for possession of his walking stick, obviously flummoxed by the situation. Luckily, his lady maintained her composure. Tehus, Tehus, she shouted. She shouted, Tehus Antosa Eha. At the sound of Telu's name, the two red-masked figures cowered, then turned and ran off down the street. Everyone cheered. One of the shopkeepers helped the gentleman retrieve his hat. I was rather surprised by the civility of it all. Apparently, even the demons were polite on the good side of town. Emboldened by what I had seen, I eyed the crowd, looking for my best prospects. I stepped up to a young woman. She wore a powder-blue dress and had a wrap of white fur. Her hair was long and golden, curled artfully around his fa her face. As I stepped forward, she looked down at me and stopped. I heard a startled intake of breath as one hand went to her mouth. Pennies, ma'am? I held out my hand and made it tremble just a little. My voice trembled, too. Please? I tried to look every bit as small and hopeless as I felt. I shuffled from foot to foot in the thin gray snow. You poor dear, she sighed almost too quietly for me to hear. She fumbled with the purse at her side, either unable or unwilling to take her eyes from me. After a moment she looked inside her purse and brought something out. As she curled my fingers around it, I felt the cold, reassuring weight of a coin. Thank you, ma'am. I said automatically. I looked down for a moment and saw silver glinting through my fingers. I opened my hand and saw a silver penny. A whole silver penny. I gaped. A silver penny was worth ten copper pennies, or fifty iron ones. More than that, it was worth a full belly every night for half a month. For an iron penny I could sleep on the floor at the red eye for the night. For two I could sleep on the hearth by the embers of the evening fire. 
I could buy a rag blanket that I would hide on the rooftops, keep, keeping me warm all winter. I looked up at the woman, who was still looking down at me with pitying eyes. She couldn't know what this meant. Lady, thank you, my voice cracked. I remembered one of the things that we said back when I lived in the troop. May all your stories be glad ones, and your rose... <clears throat> May all your stories be glad ones, and your roads be smooth and short. She smiled at me, and might have said something, but I got a strange feeling near the base of my neck. Someone was watching me. On the street you either develop a sensitivity to certain things, or your life is miserable and short. I looked around and saw a shopkeeper talking with a guard and gesturing in my direction. This wasn't some waterside guard, he was clean-shaven and upright. He wore a black leather jerkin with metal studs and carried a brass-bound club as long as his arm. I caught scraps of what the shopkeeper was saying. Customers, who's going to buy chocolate with? He gestured my way again and said something I couldn't catch. Pays you, that's right. Maybe I should mention... The guard turned his head and to look in my direction. I caught his eyes. I turned and ran. I headed for the first alley I saw, my thin shoes slipping on the light layer of snow that covered the ground. I heard his heavy boots pounding behind me as I turned into a second alley branching off from the first. My breath was burning in my chest as I looked for somewhere to go, somewhere to hide. But I didn't know this part of the city. There were no piles of trash to worm into, no burned-out buildings to climb through. I felt sharp, frozen gravel sliced through the thin sole of my shoes. Pain tore through my foot as I forced myself to keep running. I ran into a dead end after my third turning. I was halfway up one of the walls when I felt a hand close around my ankle and pull me to the ground. My head hit the cobblestones and the world spun dizzily as the guard lifted me off the ground, holding me by one wrist and my hair. "'Clever boy, aren't you?' he panted, his breath hot in my face. He smelled like leather and sweat. "'You're old enough. You should know not to run by now.' He shook me angrily and twisted my hair. I cried out as the alley tilted around me. He pressed me roughly against the wall. "'You should know enough not to be coming to Hillside, either,' he shook me. "'You dumb boy?' "'No,' I said muzzily as I felt for the cool wall with my free hand. "'No.' My answer seemed to infuriate him. No, he bit off the word. You got me in trouble, boy. I might get ridden up. If you aren't dumb, then you must need a lesson. He spun me around and threw me down. I slid in the greasy alley snow. My elbow struck the ground and my arm went numb. My, the hand clutching a month of food, warm blankets, and dry shoes came open. Something precious flew away and landed without even a clink as it hit the ground. I hardly noticed. The air hummed before his club cracked against my leg. He snarled at me. Don't come hillside, understand? The club caught me again, this time across the shoulder blades. Everything past Fallow Street is off limit to your to you little whores, sons. Understand? He backhanded me across the face. I tasted blood as my head careened off the snow-covered cobbles. I curled into a ball as he hissed down at me, and Mill Street and Mill Market is where I work, so you never come back here again. He punctuated each word with a blow from his stick. Understand? I lay there, shaking in the churned-up snow, hoping it was over, hoping he would just go away. Understand? He kicked me in the stomach, and I felt something tear inside of me. I cried out and must have babbled something. He kicked me again when I didn't get up, then went away. I think I passed out or lay in a daze. When I finally came to my senses... Again, it was dusk. I was cold to the very center of my bones. I crawled around in the muddy snow and wet garbage, searching for the silver penny with fingers so numb and cold they would barely work. One of my eyes was swelled shut and I could taste blood, but I searched until the last scrap of e evening's light was gone. Even after the alley had gone black as tar, I kept sifting the snow with my hands, though I knew in my heart of hearts that my fingers were too numb to feel the coin even if I chanced to cross it. I used the wall to get to my feet and started to walk. My wounded foot made the progress slow. Pain stabbed up my leg with each step, and I tried to use the wall as a crutch to keep some weight off it. I moved into Waterside, the part of the city that was more a home to me than anywhere else. My foot grew numb and wooden from the cold, and that, while that worried some rational part of me, my practical side was just glad there was one less part of me that hurt. It was miles back to my secret place, and my limping progress was slow. 
At some point I must have fallen. I, I don't remember it, but I do remember lying in the snow and realizing how delightfully comfortable it was. I felt sleep drawing itself over me like a thick blanket, like death. I closed my eyes. I remember the deep silence of the deserted street around me. I was too numb and tired to be properly afraid. In my delirium, I imagined death in the form of a great bird with wings of fire and shadow. It hovered above, watching patiently, waiting for me. I slept, and the great bird settled its burning wings around me. I imagined a delicious warmth. Then its claws were in me, tearing me open. No, it was just the pain of my torn ribs as someone rolled me onto my back. Blearily, I opened an eye and saw a demon standing over me. In my confused and credulous state, the sight of a... <laughs> Sorry, let me start that over again. In my confused and credulous state, the sight of the man in the demon mask startled me into wakefulness. The seductive warmth I had felt a moment ago vanished, leaving, <clears throat> leaving my body limp and leaden. It is, I told you, there's a kid lying in the snow here. The demon lifted me to my feet. Now awake... I noticed his mask was sheer black. This was Encanus, Lord of Demons. He set me unsteadily onto my feet and began to brush away the snow that covered me. Through my good eye I saw a figure in a livid green mask, standing nearby. Come on, the other demon said urgently, her voice sounding hollowly from behind the rows of pointed teeth. Encanus ignored her. Are you okay? I couldn't think of a response, so I concentrated on keeping my balance as the man continued to brush the snow away with the sleeve of his dark robe. I heard the sound of distant horns. The other demon looked nervously down the road. If we don't keep ahead of them, we'll be up to our shins in it, she hissed nervously. And Kenneth brushed the snow out of my hair with his dark-gloved fingers, then paused and leaned in closer to look at my face. His dark mask loomed oddly in my blurry vision. God's body, Holly, someone's beaten the hell out of this kid. On, on midwinter's day, too. Guard, I managed to croak. I tasted blood when I said the word. You're freezing, and Kenneth said, and, and began to chafe my arms and legs with his hands, trying to get my blood flowing again. You'll have to come with us. The horns sounded again, closer. They were mixed with the dim sounds of a crowd. Don't be stupid, the other demon said. He's in no, he's in no shape to go running through the city. He's in, he's in no shape to stay here, and Canis snapped. He continued to massage my arms and legs roughly. Some feeling was slowly returning to them, mostly a stinging, prickly heat that was like a painful mockery of the soothing warmth I had felt a minute ago when I was drifting off to sleep. Pain jabbed at me each time he went over a bruise, but my body was too tired to flinch away. The green-masked demon came close and laid a hand on her friend's shoulder. We have to go now, Garrick. Someone else will take care of him. She pulled. She tried to pull her friend away and met with no success. If they find us here with him, they'll assume we did it. The man behind the black mask swore, then nodded, and began to rummage around underneath his robe. Don't lie down again, he said to me in urgent tones, and get inside, somewhere you can warm up. The crowd sounds were close enough for me to hear the individual voices mixed with the noise of horses' hooves and creaking wooden wheels. The man the the black <clears throat> the man in the black mask held out his hand. It took me a moment to focus on what he held. A silver talent, thicker and heavier than the penny I had lost. So much money I could hardly think on it. Go on, take it. He was a form of darkness, black hooded cloak, black mask, black gloves. And Kenneth stood in front of me, holding out a bright bit of silver that caught the moonlight. It reminded me of the scene from Deonica, where Tarsus sells his soul. I took the talent, but my hands were so numb I couldn't feel it. I had to look down to make sure my fingers were gripping it. I imagined I could feel warmth raiding up my arm. I felt stronger. I grinned at the man in the black mask. Take my gloves, too. He pulled them off and pushed them against my chest. Then the woman in the green demon mask pulled my benefactor away before I could give him any word of thanks. 
I watched the two of them go. Their dark robes made them look like pieces of retreating shadow against the charcoal colors of Tarbine's moonlit streets. Not even a minute passed before I saw the pageantry's torchlight come around the corner toward me. The voices of a hundred men and women singing and shouting crashed over me like, the, like waves. I moved away until I felt my back press up against the wall. Then I slid weakly sideways until I found a recessed doorway. I watched the pageantry from my vantage there. People poured by, shouting and laughing. Telu stood tall and proud in the back of a wagon, drawn by four white horses. His silver mask gleamed in the torchlight. His white robes were immaculate and lined with fur at the cuff and collar. Gray-robed priests followed alongside, along beside the wagon, ringing bells and chanting. Many of them wore the heavy iron chains of penitent priests. The sound of the voices and the bells were, and the chanting and the chains mingled to make a sort of music. All eyes were for Telu. No one saw me standing in the shadows of the doorway. It took nearly ten minutes for all of them to pass. Only then did I emerge and begin to make my careful way home. It was slow going, but I felt fortified by the coin I held. I checked the talent every dozen steps or so to reassure myself that my numb hand was still gripping it tightly. I wanted to put on the gloves I had been given, but I feared to drop the coin and lose it in the snow. I don't know how long it took for me to get back. The walking warmed me slightly, though my feet still felt wooden and numb. When I looked back over my shoulder, my trail was marked by a smear, by a smear of blood in every other footprint. It reassured me in an odd way. A foot that bleeds is better than one that is frozen solid. Oh, man, that's true. Okay, uh, <clears throat> anyway. I stopped at the first inn I recognized. The Laughing Man. It was full of music, singing, and celebration. I avoided the front door and went around the to the back alley. There were a pair of young girls chatting in the kitchen doorway, avoiding their work. I limped up to them, using the wall as a crutch. They didn't notice me until I was nearly on top of them. The younger one looked up at me and gasped. I took a step closer. Could one of you bring me food and a blanket? I can pay. I held out my hand and was frightened by how much it shook. It was smeared with blood from when I had touched the side of my face. The inside of my mouth felt raw. It hurt to talk. Please. They looked at me for a moment in stunned silence. Then they looked at each other, and the older of the two motioned the other inside. The young girl disappeared through the door without a word. The older girl, who might have been sixteen, came closer to me and held out her hand. I gave her the coin and let my arm fall heavily to, to my side. She looked at it and disappeared inside after a, long, after a second long glance at me. Through the open doorway I heard the warm, bustling sounds of a busy inn. The low murmur of conversation punctuated with laughter, the bright clink of bottle glass, and the dull thump of wooden tankards on, on tabletops. Oh, man, say that three times fast. <sighs> and, threading gently through it all, a lute played in the background. It was faint, almost drowned by the other noise, but I heard it. The same way a mother can mark her child crying from a dozen rooms away. The music was like a memory of family, of friendship, and warm belonging. It made my gut twist and my teeth ache. For a moment my hands stopped aching from the cold and instead longed for the familiar feel of music running through them. I took a slow, shuffling step, slowly siding si goodness, slowly sliding along the wall. I almost said sidling, but I guess that's similar. Uh, I moved back away from the doorway until I couldn't hear the music anymore. Then I took another step until my hands hurt with the cold again and the ache in my chest came from nothing more than broken ribs. They were simpler pains, easier to endure. I don't know how long it was before the two girls came back. The younger one held out a blanket wrapped around something. I hugged it to my aching chest. It seemed disproportionately heavy for its size, but my arms were trembling slightly under their own weight, so it was hard to tell. The older girl held out a small, solid purse. I took it as well, clutching it so tightly my frost-burned fingers ached. She looked at me. You can have the corner by the fire in here if you want it. 
The younger girl nodded quickly. Natty won't mind. She took a step and reached out to take my arm. I jerked away from her, almost falling. No! I meant to shout, but it came out as a weak croak. Croak. Don't touch me. My voice was shaking, though I couldn't tell if I was angry or afraid. I staggered away against the wall. My voice was blurry in, in my ears. I'll be fine. The younger girl started to cry, her hands hanging useless at her sides. I've got somewhere to go. My voice cracked and I turned away. I hurried off as fast as I could. I wasn't sure what I was running from, unless it was people. That was another lesson I had learned perhaps too well. People meant pain. I heard a few muffled sobs behind me. It seemed a long while before I made it to the corner. I made it to my hidden place, where the roofs of two buildings met underneath the overhang of a third. I don't know how I managed to climb up there. Inside the blanket was a whole flask of spiced wine, and a loaf of fresh bread nestled next to a turkey breast bigger than both my bald fists. I wrapped myself in the blanket and moved out of the wind as the snow turned to sleet. The brick of the chimney behind me was warm and wonderful. The first tw swallow of wine burned my mouth like fire where it was cut, but the second didn't sting nearly so much. The bread was soft and the turkey was still warm. I woke at midnight when all the bells in the city started ringing. People ran and shouted in the streets. The seven days of high morning were behind us. Midwinter was past. A new year had begun. Mm, let's see. Next chapter is pretty long. Oh, but I did do a short episode yesterday, I suppose. 23. The Burning Wheel. Okay, well, before I get into this chapter... Oh, man, that fucking... Guard... People like that, I... And how, how ironic to be getting help from uh, Encanis. Anyway. Alright. 23. The Burning Wheel. I stayed tucked into my secret place all that night and woke late the next day to find my body had stiffened into a tight knot of pain. Since I still had food and a little wine, I stayed where I was rather than risk falling when I tried to climb down to the street. It was a sunless day, with a damp wind that never seemed to stop. Sleet gusted under the protection of the overhanging roof. The chimney was warm behind me, but it wasn't enough to actually dry out my blanket or drive away the chilly damp that soaked my clothes. I finished the wine and the bread early on, and after that I spent most of my time gnawing at the turkey bones and trying to warm up snow in the empty wine flask so I could drink it. Neither proved, proved very productive, and I ended up eating mouthfuls of slushy snow that left me shivering with the taste of tar in my mouth. Despite my injuries, I dropped off to sleep in the afternoon and woke up late at night, filled with the most wonderful warmth. I pushed away my blanket and rolled away from the now-too-hot chimney, only to wake near dawn, shivering and soaked through to the skin. I felt strange, dizzy, and fuddled. I huddled back against the chimney and spent the rest of the day drifting in and out of a restless, fevered sleep. I have no memory of how I made it off the rooftop, delirious with fever and nearly crippled. I don't remember making my way the three-quarters of a mile through tallows and the crates. I only remember falling down the stairs that led to Trappist's ba basement, my purse of money clutched tight in my hand. As I lay there shivering and sweating, I heard the faint slapping of his bare feet on the stone. What what? he said gently as he picked me up. Hush, hush. Trappist nursed me through the long days of my fever. He wrapped me in blankets, fed me, and when my fever showed no signs of breaking on its own, he used the money I'd bought to buy a bittersweet medicine. 
he kept my face and hands wet and cool while murmuring his patient, gentle, what, what, hush, hush. While I cried out from endless fever dreams of my dead parents, the Chandrian, and a man with empty eyes, I woke clear-headed and cool. Oorie, Tenny said loudly from where he was tied to his cot. What, what, hush, hush, Tenny, Trappist said as he put down one of the babies and picked up the other. It looked around owlishly with wide, dark eyes, but seemed unable to support its own head. It was quiet in the room. Oorie, Tanny said again. I coughed, trying to clear my throat. There's a cup on the floor next to you, Trappist said, brushing a hand along the head of the baby he held. Oorie, Tanny bellowed, strange half-gasps, punctuating his cry. The noise agitated several of the others who moved restlessly in their cots. The older boy sitting in the corner raised his hands to the sides of his head and began to moan. He started rocking back and forth, gently at first, but then more and more violently, so that when he came forward his head knocked against the bare stone of the wall. Trappist was at his side before the boy could do himself any real harm. He put his arms around the rocking boy. Hush, hush, Loney, hush, hush. The boy's rocking slowed, but did not entirely subside. Tenny, you know better than to make all that noise. His voice was serious, but not stern. Why are you making trouble? Loney could have hurt himself. Orahi. Tenny said softly. I thought I could detect a note of remorse in his voice. I think he wants a story, I said, surprising myself by speaking. Ah, uh, Tenny said. Is that what you want, Tenny? Ah. Uh. There was a quiet moment. I don't know any stories, he said. Tenny remained stubbornly silent. Everyone knows one story, I thought. Everyone knows at least one. Ori. Trepis looked around the quiet room as if looking for an excuse. Well, he said reluctantly, it has been a while since we had a story, hasn't it? He looked down at the boy in his arms. Would you like a story, Loney? Loney nodded a violent affirmation, nearly battering Trappist's cheek with the back of his head. Will you be good and sit by yourself so I can tell a story? Loney stopped rocking almost immediately. Trappist slowly unwrapped his arms and stepped away. Let's see. After a long look to make sure the boy wouldn't hurt himself, he stepped carefully back to his chair. Well, he muttered softly to himself as he stooped to pick up the baby he had set aside. Do I have a story? He spoke very quietly to the child's wide eyes. No, no, I don't. Can I remember one? I suppose I had better. He sat for a long moment, humming to the child in his arms, a thoughtful expression on his face. Yes, of course. He sat up taller in his chair. Are you ready? This is a story from long ago, back before any of us were born. Before our fathers were born, too. It was a long time ago. Maybe, maybe four hundred years? No, more than that. Probably a thousand years, but maybe not quite as much as that. It was a bad time in the world. People were hungry and sick. There were famines and great plagues. There were many wars and other bad things in this time, because there was no one to stop them. But the worst thing in this time was that there were demons walking the land. Some of them were small and troublesome creatures, who lamed horses and spoiled milk. But there were many worse than those. There were demons, who hid in men's bodies and made them sick or mad. But those were not the worst. There were demons, like great beasts, that would catch and eat men while they were still alive and screaming, but they were not the worst. Some demons stole the skins of men and wore them like clothes, but even they were not the worst. There was one demon that stood above the others, Enkenes, the swallowing darkness. No matter where he walked, shadows hid his face, and scorpions that stung him died of the corruption they had touched. Now Telu, who made the world, and who is lord over all, watched 
the world of men. He saw that demons made sport of us and killed us and ate our bodies. Some men he saved, but only a few. For Telu is just and saves only the worthy, and in those times few men acted even for their own good, let alone the good of others. Because of this, Telu was unhappy, for he had made the world to be a good place for men to live, but his church was corrupt. They stole from the poor and did not live by the laws he had given. No, wait, there was no church yet, and no priests either, just men and women, and some of them knew who Telu was, but even those were wicked, so when they called on Lord Telu for help, he felt no desire to aid them. But after years of watching and waiting, Telu saw a woman, pure of heart and spirit. Her name was Periel. Her mother had raised her to know Telu, and she worshipped him as well as her poor circumstances allowed. Although her own life was hard, Periel prayed only for others and never for herself. Telu watched her for long years. He saw her life was hard, full of misfortune and torment at the hands of demons and bad men. But she never cursed his name, or ceased her praying, and she never treated any person other than with kindness and respect. So late one night Telu went to her in a dream. He stood before her and seemed to be made entirely of fire or sunlight. He came to her in splendor and asked if she knew who he was. Sure enough, she said. You see, she was very calm about it, because she thought she was just having an odd dream. Your lord Telu. He nodded and asked her if she knew why he had come to her. Are you going to do something for my neighbor Deborah? She asked, because that's who she had prayed for before she went to sleep. Are you going to lay your hand on her husband, Lozel, and make him a better man? The way he treats her isn't right. Man should never lay a hand on woman, save in love. Telu knew her neighbors. He knew they were very, he knew they were wicked people who had done wicked things. Everyone in the village was wicked but her. Everyone in the world was. He told her so. Deborah has been very kind and good to me, Periel said, and even Losel, who I don't care for, is one of my neighbors all the same. Telu told her that Deborah spent time in many different men's beds, and Losel drank every day, even on morning. No, wait, there wasn't any morning yet, but he drank a lot at any rate. Sometimes he grew so angry that he beat his wife until she could not stand or even cry aloud. Periel was quiet for a long moment in her dream. She knew Telu spoke the truth, but while, per <clears throat> but while Periel was pure of heart, she was not a fool. She had suspected her neighbors of doing the things Telu said. Even now that she knew for certain... She cared for her neighbors all the same. You won't help her? Telu said that man and wife were each other's fitting punishment. Or that, the, that the man and wife. Okay, sorry, let me start, start that again. Telu said that the man and wife were each other's fitting punishment. They were wicked, and the wicked should be punished. Periel spoke out honestly, perhaps because she thought she was dreaming. But be, perhaps she would have said the same thing had she been awake. For Periel said what was in her heart. It's not their fault that the world is full of hard choices and hunger and loneliness, she said. What can you expect of people when demons are their neighbors? But though Telu listened to her wise words with his ears, he told her that mankind was wicked, and the wicked should be punished. I think you know very little about what it is to be a man, she said, and I would help you, <clears throat> and I would still help them if I could she told him resolutely. So you shall, Telu told her, and reached out to lay his hand on her heart. When he touched her, she felt like she were a great golden bell that had just rung out its first note. She opened her eyes and knew then that it had been no normal dream. Thus it was that she was not surprised to discover she was pregnant. In three months she gave birth to a perfect dark-eyed baby boy. She named him Menda. The day after he was born, Menda could crawl. In two days he could walk. Periel was surprised, but not worried, for she knew the child was a gift from God. Nevertheless, Periel was wise. She knew that people might not understand, so she kept Menda close by her, and when her friends and neighbors came to visit, she sent them away. But this could only last a little while, for in a small town there are no secrets. 
folk knew that Periel was not married, and while children born out of wedlock were common during this time, children who grew to manhood in less than two months were not. They were afraid that she might have lain down with a demon, and that her child was a demon's child. Such things were not unheard of in those dark times, and the people were afraid. So everyone gathered together on the first day of the seventh span, and made their way to the tiny house where Periel lived by herself, with her son. The townsmith, whose name was Rengen, led them. "'Show us the boy!' he yelled. But there was no response from the house. "'Bring out the boy and show us he is nothing but a human child!' The house remained quiet, and though there were many men among them, no one wanted to enter a house that might have a demon's child inside. So the smith cried out again, Periel, bring out young Menda, or we will burn your house to the ground. The door opened, and a man stepped out. None of them recognized who it was, because even though he was only seven span from the womb, Menda looked to be a young man of seventeen. He stood proud and tall, with coal-black hair and eyes. I am the one you think is Menda, he said, in a voice both powerful and deep. What do you want of me? The sound of his voice made Periel gasp inside the cottage. Not only was this the first time Menda had ever spoken, but she recognized his voice as the same one that had spoken to her in a dream months ago. What do you mean, we think you are Menda? asked the smith, gripping his hammer tightly. He knew that there were demons that looked like men, or wore their skins like costumes the way a man might hide beneath a sheepskin. The child, who was not a child, spoke again. I am Periel's son, but I am not Menda, and I am not a demon. Touch the iron of my hammer, then, said Rengen, for he knew all demons feared two things, cold iron and clean fire. He held out his heavy forge hammer. It shook in his hands, but no one thought the less of him for it. He who was not Menda stepped forward and lay both hands on the iron head of the hammer. Nothing happened. From the doorway of her house, where she watched, Periel burst into tears, for though she trusted Telu, some part of her had held a mother's worry for her son. I am not Menda, though that is what my mother called me. I am Telu, Lord above all. I have come to free you from demons and the wickedness of your own hearts. I am Telu, son of myself. Let the wicked hear my voice and tremble. And they did tremble, and some, but some of them refused to believe. They called him a demon and threatened him. They spoke hard, frightened words. Some threw stones and cursed him and spat toward him and his mother. Then Telu grew angry, and he might have slain them all, but Periel leaped forward and laid a restraining hand on his shoulder. What more can you expect? she asked him quietly, from men who live with demons for their neighbors. Even the best dog will bite when it has been kicked enough. Telu considered her words, and saw that she was wise. So he looked over his hands at Rengen, looked deep into his heart, and said, Rengen, son of Engen, you have a mistress whom you pay to lie with you. Some men come to you for work, and you cheat or steal from them. And though you pray loudly, you do not believe I, Telu, made the world, and watch over all who live here. When Rengen heard this, he grew pale and dropped his hammer to the ground, for what Telu said to him was true. Telu looked at all the men and women there. He looked into their hearts and spoke of what he saw. All of them were wicked, so much that Rengen was among the best of them. Then Telu drew a line in the dirt of the road, so that it lay between himself and all those who had come. This road is like the meandering course of a life. There are two paths to take, side by side. Each of you are already traveling that side. You must choose. Stay on your own path, or cross to mine. But the road is the same, isn't it? It still goes to the same place, someone asked. Yes. Where does the road lead? Death. All lives end in death, excepting one. Such is the way of things. Then what does it matter what, which side a man is on? It was Rengen asking these questions. He was a large man, one of the few that was taller than dark-eyed Telu. 
but he was shaken by all that he had seen and heard in the past few hours. What is on our side of the road? Pain, Telu said in a voice as hard and cold as stone. Punishment? And your side? Pain now, Telu said in the same voice. Punishment now for all that you have done. It cannot be avoided, but I am here too. This is my path. How do I cross? Regret, repent, and cross to me. Rengan stepped over the line to stand beside his god. Then Telu bent to pick up the hammer with the, that the smith had dropped. But instead of giving it back, he struck Rengan with it as if it were a lash. Once, <coughs> goodness, once, twice, thrice. And the third blow sent Rengan to his knees, sobbing and crying out in pain. But after the third blow, Telu laid the hammer aside and knelt to look Rengan in the face. You were the first to cross, he said softly, so only the smith could hear. It was a brave thing, a hard thing to do. I am proud of you. You are no longer Rengan. Now you are Wereth, the forger of the path. Then Telu embraced him with both arms, and his touch took much of the pain from Rengan, who was now Wereth, but not all, for Telu spoke truly when he said that punishment could, cannot be avoided. One by one they crossed, and one by one Telu struck them down with the hammer, but after each man or woman fell, Telu knelt and spoke to them, giving them new names and healing some of their hurt. Many of the men and women had demons hiding inside them that fled, screaming when the hammer touched them. These people Telu spoke with a while longer, but he always embraced them in the end, and they were all grateful. Some of them danced for joy of bring, for the joy of being free of such terrible things living inside them. In the end, seven stayed on the other side of the line. Telu asked them three times if they would cross, and three times they refused. After the third asking, Telu sprang across the line. Sorry, let me make sure I read all of that correctly. In the end, seven stayed on the other side of the line. Telu asked them three times if they would cross, and three times they refused. After the third asking, Telu sprang across the line, and he struck each of them a great blow, driving them to the ground. But not all were men. When Telu struck the fourth, there was the sound of quenching iron and the smell of burning leather. For the fourth man had not been a man at all, but a demon wearing a man's skin. When it was revealed, Telu grabbed the demon and broke it in his hands, cursing its name and sending it back to the outer darkness that is the home of its kind. The remaining three let themselves be struck down. None of them were demons, though demons fled the bodies of some who fell. After he was done, Telu did not speak to the six who did not cross, nor did he kneel to embrace them and ease their wounds. The next day, Telu set off to finish what he had begun. He walked from town to town, offering each village he had met the same choice he had given before. Always the results were the same. Some crossed, some stayed. Some were not men at all, but demons and those he destroyed. But there was one demon who eluded Telu, Enkinus whose face was all in shadow. Enkinus, whose voice was like a knife in the minds of men. Wherever Telu stopped to offer men the choice of path, Enkinus had been there just before, killing crops and poisoning wells. Enkinus setting men to murder one another and stealing children from their beds at night. At the end of seven years, Telu's feet had carried him all through the world, he had driven out the demons that plagued us, all but one. Enkenis ran free and did the work of a thousand demons, destroying and despoiling wherever he went. So Telu chased, and Enkenis fled. Soon Telu was a span of days behind the demon, then two days, then half a day. Finally, he was so close that he felt the chill of Enkenis passing, and could spy places where he had set his hands and feet, for they were marked with a cold, black frost. Knowing he was pursued, Enkinus came to a great city. The Lord of Demons called forth his power, and the city was brought to ruin. He did this hoping Telu would delay so he could make his escape. But the walking god paused only to appoint priests who cared for the people in the of the ruined town. For six days Enkinus fled, and six great cities he destroyed. But on the seventh day, Telu drew near before Enkinus could bring his power to bear, and the seventh city was saved. 
That is why seven is a lucky number, and why we celebrate Unchan. Spelled C-H-A-E-N. Enkenes was now hard-pressed, and bent his whole thought upon escape. But on the eighth day, Telu did not pause to sleep or eat, and thus it was at the end of felling, Telu caught Enkenes. He le leaped up on the demon, and struck him with his forge hammer. Enkinus fell like a stone, but Telu's hammer shattered and lay in the dust of the road. Telu carried the demon's limp body all through the long night, and on the morning of the ninth day he came across the city of Etur. When men saw Telu carrying the demon's senseless form, they thought Enkinus dead, but Telu knew that such a thing was not easily done. No simple blade or blow could kill him. No cell of bars could keep him safe within. So Telu carried Enkinus to the smithy. He called for iron, and people brought all they owned. Though he had taken no rest, nor a morsel of food, all through the ninth day Telu labored. While ten men worked the bellows, the bellows, Telu forged the great iron wheel. All night he worked, and when the first light of the tenth morning touched him, Telu struck the wheel one final time, and it was finished. Wrought all of black iron, the wheel stood taller than a man. It had six spokes, each thicker than a hammer's haft, and its rim was a handspan across. It weighed as much as forty men, and was cold to the touch. The sound of its name was terrible, and none could speak it. Telu gathered the people who were watching, and chose a priest among them. Then he set them to dig a great pit in the center of town, fifteen feet wide and twenty feet deep. When the sun, With the sun rising, Telu laid the body of the demon on the wheel. At the first touch of iron, Enkinus began to stir in his sleep, but Telu chained him tightly to the wheel, hammering the links together, sealing them tighter than any lock. Then Telu stepped back, and all saw Enkinus shift again as if disturbed by an unpleasant dream. Then he shook and came awake entirely. Enkinus strained against the chains, his body arching upward as he pulled against them. Where the iron touched his skin, it felt like knives and needles and nails, like the searing pain of frost, like the sting of a hundred biting flies. Enkinus thrashed on the wheel and began to howl as the iron burned and bit and froze him. So Telu... <clears throat> no, not so... To Telu, the sound was like a sweet music. He lay down on the ground beside the wheel and slept a deep sleep, for he was very tired. When he awoke, it was the evening of the tenth day. Enkinus was still bound to the wheel, but he no longer howled and fought like a trapped animal. Telu bent and with great effort lifted one edge of the wheel and set it leaning against a tree that grew nearby. As soon as he came close, Enkinus cursed him in languages no one knew, scratching and biting. You brought this on yourself, Telu said. That night there was a celebration. Telu sent men to cut a dozen evergreens and use them to kindle a bonfire in the bottom of the deep pit they had dug. All night the townsfolk danced and sang around the burning fire. They knew the last and most dangerous of the world's demons was finally caught. And all night Enkinus hung from his wheel and watched them motionless as a snake. When the morning of the eleventh day came, Telu went to Enkinus a third and final time. The demon looked worn and feral. His skin was sallow and his bones pressed tight against his skin, but his power still lay around him like a dark mantle hiding his face in shadow. Enkinus, Telu said, This is your last chance to speak. Do it, for I know it is within your power. Lord Telu, I am not Enkinus. For that brief moment the demon's voice was pitiful, and all who heard it were moved to sorrow. But then there was a sound like quenching iron, and the, the wheel rung like an iron bell. Enkinus's body arched painfully at the sound, then hung limply from his wrists at the ringing of the, as the ringing of the wheel faded. Try no tricks, dark one. Speak no lies, Telu said sternly, his eyes as dark and hard as the iron of the wheel. What then? Enkinus hissed, his voice like the rasp of stone on stone. What? Rack and shatter you. What do you want from, of me? 
Your road is very short, Enkinus, but you may still choose a site on which to travel. Enkinus laughed. You will give me the same choice you give the cattle? Yes, then, I will cross you to your side of the path. I regret and rip and the wheel rung again, like a great bell tolling long and deep. Enkinus threw his body tight against the chains again at the sound of his scream, and the sound of his scream shook the earth and shattered stones for half a mile in each direction. When the sounds of the wheel and scream had faded, Enkinus hung panting and shaking from his chains. I told you to speak no lie, Enkinus, Talu said, pitiless. My path, then. Enkinus shrieked, I do not regret. If I had my choice again, I would only change how fast I ran. Your people are like cattle my kind feed on, bite and break you. If you gave me half an hour, I would do such things that these wretched gopping peasants would go mad with fear. I would drink their children's blood and bathe in women's tears. He might have said more, but his breath was short as he strained against the chains that held him. So, Telu said, and stepped close to the wheel. For a moment it seemed like he would embrace Enkinus, but he was merely reaching for the iron spokes of the wheel. Then, straining, Telu lifted the wheel above his head. He carried it, arms upstretched, toward the pit, and threw Enkinus in. Through the long hours of night, a dozen evergreens had fed the fire. The flames had died in the early morning, leaving a deep bed of sullen coals that glimmered when the wind brushed them. The wheel struck flat, with Enkinus on top. There was an explosion of spark and ash as it landed and sank inches deep into the hot coals. Enkinus was held over the coals by the iron that bound and burned and bit at him. Though he was held away from the fire itself, the heat was so intense that Enkinus's coal Though he was held away from the fire itself, the heat was so intense that Enkinus's clothes charred black and began to crumble without bursting into flame. The demon thrashed against his bonds, setting, settling the wheel even more firmly into the coals. Enkinus screamed because he knew that even demons can die from fire or iron. And though he was powerful, he was bound and burning. He felt the metal of the wheel grow hot beneath him, blackening the flesh of his arms and legs. Enkinus screamed, and even as his skin began to smoke and char, his face was still hidden in a shadow that rose from him like a tongue of darkening flame. Then Enkinus grew silent, and the only sound was the hiss of sweat and blood as they fell from the demon's straining limbs. For a long moment everything was still. Enkinus strained against the chains that held him to the wheel and it seemed that he would strain until his muscles tore themselves from bone and sinew both. Then there was a sharp sound like a bell breaking, and the demon's arm jerked free of the wheel. Links of chain, now glowing red from the heat of the fire, flew upward to land smoking at the feet of those who stood above. The only sound was the sudden wild laughter of Enkinus, like breaking glass. In a moment the demon's second hand was free. But before he could do more, Telu flung himself into the pit and landed with such force that the iron rang with it. Telu grabbed the hands of the demon and pressed them back against the wheel. Enkinus screamed in fury and disbelief, for though he was forced back onto the burning wheel, and though he felt the strength of Telu was greater than the chains he had broken, he saw Telu was burning in the flames. Fool, he wailed, you will die here with me. Let me go and live. Let me go and I will trouble you no further. And the wheel did not ring out, for Enkinus was truly frightened. No, said Telu, your punishment is death, you will serve it. Fool, maddling, Enkinus thrashed to no avail, you are burning in the flames with me, you will die as I do. To ash all things return, so too this flesh will burn, but I am Telu, son of myself, father of myself. I was before, and I will be after. If I am the sacrifice, then it is to my, if I am a sacrifice, then it is to myself alone. And if I am needed and called in the proper ways, then I will come again to judge and punish. So Telu held him to the burning wheel, and none of the demon's threats or screaming moved him the least part of an inch. So it was that Enkinus passed from the world, and with him went Telu, who was Menda. Both of them burned to ash in the pit in Atur. That is why the Telin priests wear robes of ash and gray. 
And that is how we know Telu cares for us and watches us and keeps us safe from... Trappist broke, <clears throat> Trappist broke off his story as Jaspin began to howl and thrash against his restraints. I slid softly back into unconsciousness as soon as I no longer had the story to hold my attention. After that, I began to harbor a suspicion that never entirely left me. Was Trappist a Talon priest? His robe was tattered and dirty, but it might have been the proper gray long ago. Parts of his story had been awkward and stumbling, but some were stately and grand, as if he had been reciting them from some half-forgotten memory. Of sermons? Of his readings from the Book of the Path? I never asked, and though I stopped by his basement frequently in the months that followed, I never heard Trappus tell another story again. Well, that'll do for tonight. Huh. Good night, all.